We've been in a series called Fusion. This series has been really focusing on our oneness in Christ and a work that I am absolutely convinced that the Father is doing with great emphasis right now in this generation. I believe, obviously, we are closer to the second coming than we ever have been, and that when Jesus Christ comes back, he's coming back for a unified church. I don't believe that every iron will be wrinkled out, or excuse me, every wrinkle will be ironed out. (laughs) I don't necessarily know that every blemish will be removed before he returns, but I can tell you, he's going to come back, and before he does, he's going to purify his bride. He's going to purify the church of the living God. And one of the blights on the church in America is the multiple layers of things that we have allowed to divide us over the centuries. And one of the marks that we see happening in our region right now is that the Father is working to bring his church. And remember, we studied last week, if you were here in the midweek service, there's only one church. I know what the church signs say. You've got the flavor of Baptist, the flavor of Methodist, the flavor of Presbyterian, the flavor of Episcopalian, the flavor of Pentecostal and Assemblies of God and all the sub-denominations under all of that. Jesus just looks at that and says, aren't y'all precious? Y'all just need to learn there's actually only one church. There's only one church, and that's the one he's coming back for. Now, we're in a season right now where we're actually counteracting those forces that seek to divide the church. We dealt with some of them um, over the last few weeks, one of them being the issue of race. In upcoming weeks, we're going to look further at this issue of denominationalism and how it unnecessarily divides the church rather than us working through the things that we disagree upon and retaining unity, as Paul commanded in Ephesians 4, maintaining the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Instead of doing that, we've just said, that sounds too hard. We'll just start another denomination with people that agree with us. And friends, we're going to see denominational walls. Let me just get a little prophetic here. Can I do that? Thank you. I'm going to do it. Before the coming of Christ, the persecution against the people of God, biblical Christianity in the United States, I believe worldwide, but we're standing in the States today. I believe persecution will come so hot, hard, and heavy against the church. It'll come from our culture. I do believe it'll come from the government. And of course, that's all situated in the agenda of Satan. It's going to come against the church in such a way that it is literally going to burn away nominal Christianity. That means those that are just kind of hunkering down on Sundays, getting their feel-good vibe on, but aren't consecrated to Jesus, they'll never make it through what's coming against the church in America. And what the end result is going to be is you're going to have a purified group of people all over the nation. And there's going to be some out of every denomination, but by this point, the church will become so galvanized as a persecuted people that what you're going to find out is denominations are not only going to be unnecessary, they're going to be absolutely gone. I'm going to tell you why. Because when the devil is attacking and the culture is attacking and the government may end up, it's starting a little subtly right now, but hold your breath. Here we go. When all of that comes at the same time, we're going to find out that what matters most is that we are a people blood-bought, saved by the grace of God, purchased by the blood of the Lamb of God, and we are eternally unified by the Holy Spirit. And the rest of that stuff really isn't going to matter when all the fire of persecution hits. And so what I'm saying is this, I don't want to wait till the trouble comes before we engage in purifying the church from the things that divide us. I don't want to have to have the enemy facilitate the will of God. God's already declared it that my people are one. John 17, Ephesians 2, Ephesians chapter 4, John 10. You're going to find it in the book of the Revelation. You're going to have all sorts of people in the eternal state bowing before the throne. And what those people have in common is that they were bought by the blood of Jesus and their testimony endured until the end. And friends, I don't want to wait till the enemy comes to to facilitate that. I don't want to wait for the enemy to come down and tear down the walls that we should be tearing down that divide the church. And so if you will humor me today and in this series, I'm going to take a crack at it, amen? So stand to your feet if you're physically able with your Bible open to the book of Ephesians chapter number 2. And I want to bring you a message called Embracing the Truce. Not the truth, but embracing the truce. We're going back in time, 2,000 years, to the first century church where Paul the Apostle in the first century was working overtime to bring two disparate people groups together. 
They were different in many ways, but they were saved, Jews and Gentiles. And from their example and the counsel given to them, you and I find instruction for our souls about how to maintain unity in the church, even when we are not perfectly aligned in all the other nuances that encompass our lives. Ephesians chapter number 2, verse number 11. Therefore, remember at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, say but now, but now, in Christ, say that, in Christ, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him... You also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So I'm going to pray for something and against something. I'm going to pray for your heart to be absolutely released, absolutely released into an unapologetic, unashamed, and enthusiastic pursuit for unity in the body of Christ. I'm going to pray for you to be released. I'm also going to pray against something. I'm going to pray against every argument that comes into your mind and heart from your past, the present culture, and future fears. I'm praying against all of that. So, Father, in the name of Jesus, let every heart be absolutely freed by the Word of God this morning and by the Holy Spirit's illuminating power with the Word. Let the sword come in and do dissecting work and let every heart be free to unashamedly, unapologetically, and enthusiastically pursue unity in the body of Christ. And Father, let every stronghold come down right now in this room, every cultural stronghold, every racial stronghold, every socioeconomic stronghold, every political stronghold, that seeks to assign us our identity with an identity that is inferior to the identity that you've given us in Jesus. And I pray it in his authoritative name. Amen and amen. Hallelujah. You can be seated this morning. So we're going to embrace the truce. Why? Well, because Jesus paid a lot for there to be a truce between uh, people. He paid a lot for it. Your salvation isn't private. I know it occurred between you and the Lord, but it didn't stay static between you and him. Your salvation not only reconciled you this way, it's, it's reconciling you this way. That means you're one with him because of the price that he paid. And because you're one with him, you are also one with everybody else that's one with him. And yet nothing in our lives seeks to facilitate that. As a matter of fact, everything in our lives outside of the gospel seeks to hinder that reality. But it is the reality as Jesus sees it. And so we want the mind of Christ to also be in us. So how many of you want to see things like Jesus sees things? And it's not enough to amen it on a Sunday. I don't want you to stop amening. That encourages me. But it's not enough to say amen. We have to give ourselves to it. And that's where the church is right now. The church has been amening this stuff for decade after decade after decade after decade. And what God is doing right now is he said, all right, all those amens are wonderful. Now, I want you to take all that energy behind your amen and put it into your hands and your feet and start working this thing out. And so, what does it look like? Well, first of all, we're going to do a little history lesson here. It won't be boring. It ought to motivate you. But we're going to talk about Jews and Gentiles. 
And they, in the first church, had a history of hostility. You've got to remember, we're within 75 years of Jesus' death, resurrection, uh, burial, and resurrection. And so the church is relatively young. And the church initially was comprised of believing Jews who recognized Yeshua of Nazareth as being the Messiah. And so the initial outpouring came from the Father upon Jews. Salvation is of the Jews. And yet God never intended it to stay that way. And so as the gospel advanced and many of the Hebrew people rejected the message of Jesus, there were times where now the gospel was definitively to have been said, it is now going to the Gentiles. And amazingly, God God did the same work among Gentiles, non-Jews, that he did with the Jews. And the Holy Spirit was poured out upon Gentiles, indicating that they were truly born of faith, uh, born of the Father by faith in Jesus. And so what you had is you had one salvation reaching two distinct people groups, and now they were one. But here's the problem. They didn't know how to be one. Because historically, culturally, they had always been separate and even hostile towards each other. Look at what Paul says. First of all, three, three aspects of this division. The first is very simple. There was racial division. Paul says, remember before you were saved, remember where he found you. And he's writing to the church at Ephesus, primarily Gentile converts. He says that at one time you were Gentiles, and notice the phrasing, in the flesh. Paul goes ahead and recognizes that there were carnal, material, fleshly, temporal differences between these Christians. And here you've got the dichotomy between Jews and Gentiles. Jews being the descendants, the bloodline of Abraham and Gentiles being everybody else. The Greeks in particular had a great aversion to the Hebrews and the Hebrews had an aversion socially uh, towards any other people group that was not Hebrew. And so in the essence of it, though it was cultural, though it was theological or religious, but in the essence of it, there was a great racial divide. And all of a sudden, these two distinct groups are saved And they didn't have a Gentile church and a Jewish church. And you could go to this one on this street corner and this one on the other. They were living in the Roman Empire where hostility against Christianity was intense. And so what did they have to do? They had to come together. And guess what they had to do? They had to work it out. And they needed some apostolic leadership to be able to make that happen because things would not get worked out on their own. They had to be taught. They had to be trained. They had to be humbled, they had to be filled, and they had to be committed. And so Paul says now, writing to the church at Ephesus, where in chapter 1 of Ephesians, in chapter 2, the beginning of Ephesians, he's outlining the salvation that God had given them by grace. In other words, aren't you humbled that God came after you with his gift of salvation? And he's saying, don't ever forget how gracious God has been to you. And by the time you get to chapter 3, he's telling them how to live out all of this stuff. But it all began with this reality that, quite frankly, the Jewish-Gentile tension would be thousands of times more intense than the black-white division that you saw in the 1950s, 60s, and even repeating itself with a renewed intensity in our present day. This Jewish-Gentile hostility blows away anything we've ever seen between black and white and other races in America. But because there was racial diversity and division even, there was also the recognition of cultural opposition. Look in verse number 11 at the end of it. Paul said, you were the Gentiles in the flesh, and you were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Now, we don't pick up on this, but I want you to know that the circumcision, or excuse me, the uncircumcision was an epithet. It was a cultural epithet. It was a slur. It was a slam. It wasn't simply a description, and I'm not going to go into detail, and you'll thank me later about this issue of circumcision. If you've got kids here, you can talk to them about it later, but adults, you know what I'm talking about. But that was a sign. It was a, a visible sign of an inward Abrahamic covenant. Jewish males were circumcised, and they wore it as a badge. In the sense of, yes, remember from 1 Samuel chapter 17, Goliath is running his mouth down in the valley. The army of Israel's knees are knocking. They don't want, know what to do. And, and the young guy from the youth group named David comes up, and he comes to bring food to all the soldiers, and the soldiers aren't doing anything. And this little student comes up, and he's like, hey, do you hear what this giant down here is saying? And do you remember what he said? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? 
It was a slam. And David was righteously moved and indignant that one of those Gentile Philistines had the audacity to speak ill of Israel and the God of Israel. Well, there they are centuries later, and the phrase, the uncircumcision, is still a slam. And so you've got a cultural vibe going on. Now, I'm going to come back and apply all of this later. If you're a thinking person, you're already making parallels. Because, listen, blacks, whites, Asians, Hispanics, in those diverse racial groups, we all have our little uncircumcision phrases and words. Now, I'm not talking about the church. Those things ought to disappear from your vocabulary the moment you bow the knee to Jesus. But I'm talking about the culture that the, the world tries to fit us into because of the color of our skin. And we, we, we know that that kind of opposition exists. By the way, one of the things that the Father is showing me is I've just been deeply moved in prayer. If you weren't at the one race meeting uh, that Tony referenced uh, during worship this morning, the one race movement, the one race gathering uh, was last Friday night a couple of days ago. And there were over a thousand Christians, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, packed into one building, spilling out into the parking lot, coming together, saying in solidarity that we won't be identified by our color, that we will be identified by Jesus, and that we are going to work at this until the church gets it right. And so we're not looking to the government, God bless them. We're not looking to the culture. This is what the Father has been showing me. Jeff, the church is starting to smell more like the culture in this area then the culture is starting to have the scent of the church. So the hostility in the culture is starting to invade the church instead of the love of the church invading the culture. And so the Father's working dogmatically. I believe one race is part of it, but it goes back. This is not new. That's what I'm trying to show you here. This goes back centuries in the church. But quite frankly, we ought to be tired of it. Why? Because it's unjust. It's unholy. It's beneath the name of the one that we exalted for seven minutes in song this morning. And so we go further into this Jew-Gentile history of hostility and look in verse 12. There was not only racial division and cultural opposition, but there were ideological barriers. Paul says here, and he's talking to the Gentiles who were outside of the Abrahamic covenants, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the Jewish covenants. He says, remember that you were at that time when you were lost, when you were not yet saved, you were separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise. You had no hope, and you were without God in the world. And so think about what Paul's saying. He's saying to a group of people who had experienced the astounding, audacious grace of God who sent Jesus to the world and gave Gentiles who had no claim to the covenants of God. God reserves the right to remain sovereign all throughout human history. You need to swallow that. And God sovereignly chose Abraham and sovereignly decreed that he would bless the descendants of Abraham and sovereignly declared that the Messiah would come from the line of Abraham. And the Gentiles had nothing. They could not throw a single anchor into any of those promises. They were exclusively Hebrew. And yet God in his mercy did not confine the glorious gospel of Christ to the Hebrews, but opened it up unto all people. So now whosoever will may be saved. And the joy that the, perhaps the Gentile Christians might have been forgetting is that at one time, they not only were racially different, but they were Christless. They were homeless in the sense of they had no enduring land. They were strangers to the covenants and alienated from the commonwealth. They were hopeless. They had a multitude of gods in the Gentile uh, arena. I mean, they're polytheistic to the core, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of pagan deities that they worshipped and they sacrificed to. Listen, the Greek culture in the first century was ridiculously religious, but in the midst of their religion, they had no god. They had no hope. They were pagan. They were aiming all of their efforts in the wrong direction, and they were misfiring every time. And yet God in his mercy said, I will open to you the immeasurable riches of the grace I am extending in my son Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. And some of those Gentiles were brought to faith, but prior to that, 
all of those ideological barriers between Jews and Gentiles. Can we, can we use our sanctified imagination for a moment? If you're in a first century church, and let's just make ourselves a Gentile, and we walk into a gathering, and immediately we're aware, by the way others are dressed, by the way they carry themselves, by the accents on their, on their, uh, their tongues, by the words that they use, by how they move and they carry themselves, we're immediately hit visually and audibly with the reality we are different from these people who are also saved. And so immediately, this is what happens. As, as Christians in that environment, they have to make a decision. Will we interact based on what we, we have indifference with each other or what we share? And so the temptation would be, well, we're so different, then we'll remain separate, we'll allow for hostility, we'll play tug of war in the kingdom because, frankly, if you really wanted to look at it from a human standpoint, the Jews might have felt like, the Jewish Christians might have felt like they had the edge because they had the covenants, they had the promises, they had the history with God. And in and, and a, and a carnal mindset, uh, a Jewish Christian might even say, you guys are just lucky you got in. You ought to just be happy you're in. You follow me? Well, it's that kind of, that superior attitude. Yeah, they're in. They got in on a technicality that the Father gave them. You know, it's like, we wouldn't have done that. Well, of course you wouldn't. That's why you're not God. God let them in. And all of a sudden, it's equal ground, but culturally, it doesn't feel like equal ground because Jews and Gentiles didn't get along. Ideologically, it doesn't feel like equal ground because they have nothing in common. It kind of sounds like the church today, where we walk in and we see people with different skin color than us, people with different personalities than us, people that dress differently than us, talk differently than us people that move differently than us. You say, Jeff, who's the us? Well, it's all of us. This applies to all of us. And immediately we're visually assaulted. And then because there's such a deep reality that many people in the church are drawing their identity from the culture instead of the word of God. And so they're automatically coming in and they're feeling the difference vibes and they, they, spiritually, because the Holy Spirit in us wants to move to the Holy Spirit in others. So spiritually, you want that oneness. You want that connection. You want to understand and to be understood, to love and to be loved, to be united. You want that in the spirit, but the flesh, remember the first two verses I read, the, the, the phrase in the flesh is used twice. There's the problem. The problem's in the flesh. That's why the scriptures tell us the flesh can never be sanctified. The flesh must be crucified. The flesh is good for nothing but to be executed. And yet every time you're listening to your favorite pundit, your favorite politician, your favorite newscaster, your favorite blogger, your favorite Facebooker who thinks just like you and says all the things you wish you had the courage to say, every time you let that stuff churn in your system, you're making it that much harder to be one with people that you share Jesus with. Now, forgive me if I'm coming on strong, but let me just tell you something. I'm coming on strong this morning. This kind of stuff, you can't, you can't knock this down with a Q-tip. It takes a jackhammer, a sledgehammer, and whatever kind of hammer you can swing because this stuff has been standing around so long, and I'm going to tell you, it's going to be a dramatic movement that topples this stuff down. Lullabies ain't going to cut it. There's going to be a song, a Jericho song to knock some of these walls, a Jericho shout that's going to bring this down. And so all of this was going on in the lives of the Jews and the Gentiles 1,900 years ago. And there are some parallels today. Ultimately, friends, as we move forward into this text in just a moment, here's what the Father is asking every single one of his children. Will you do your part? Will you do your part? You say, well, Jeff, this is all idealistic. This is just part of the way America is. This is just life in the South. Really? Because you're thinking like a pagan. That's not the Holy Spirit talking in you. What is it? It's the flesh. Because what you're saying is something has gotten so entrenched that even God can't fix it. And you know what? We would never say that, but some of us are breathing in that stuff. Unfortunately, some of us are breathing it out. And so if there's a toxicity going on. 
And what I'm saying is, I, I, I sit there sometimes, I wonder, I, Lord, what would happen if <clears throat> we just all shut up? What, what would happen? I know you're not supposed to say that in the pulpit, but I did. I'm going to say it again. What would happen if we just would all be quiet? If, we, if the church just quit regurgitating this verbal uh, vomit? What, what if we just, every time we, instead of Facebook venting, boom! And then everybody that thinks exactly like you likes it, likes it, and you start feeling vindicated and validated. And I, that's right, we're right. That's why I got off Facebook, by the way. I post on Transformer Truth, and I post on New Bridge, and I don't post on my page, and I don't read your pages anymore for the most part because there's just so much junk out there. Maybe you're more spiritual than me. I, I can't smell that stuff and not feel like it smells on me. I just can't do it. But yet it's happening all across the church. Listen, it happens in this church. Did you see what so-and-so posted on Facebook? No. Why not? I was reading my Bible. I know, that sounded a little arrogant. It was, but... My I'm, I'm just trying to, I'm, I'm subtly and not so subtly trying to say, mm, knock it off. That's, that's all I'm saying. Like, you're really not helping a thing. You're, you're just not helping the thing. Like, man, have you heard anybody in the last week? Man, I felt this way about the Confederate flag. I, I felt like this, but, but then I saw so-and-so's Facebook page. Everything changed. Everything. I felt this way about Charlottesville. Then I read this on Facebook, and everything changed. Facebook doesn't do anything except throw nasty fuel on an already uncontrollable fire. I'm not picking on Facebook for that just for the sake of doing so. What I'm saying is that junk's not helping you. Go down into verses 13, 14, 15, and 16 with me. There are days where I just would love to preach theology, and there are days where God says, um, you need to shepherd people. You need to shepherd through the issues, and that's what we're doing right now. Forgiven and freed, a theology of unity. This is our theology, friends. First of all, remember what Jesus has accomplished for the individual. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you, all you Gentiles, who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Let's just remember that for a moment. We never would have come to him. We never would have come to Jesus. Left to ourselves, we never would have come to Christ. Some of you are thinking, I bet I would have. No, you wouldn't. You, you would not have. Every single one of us, we don't understand all the dynamics of it, but we were pursued by God. God always made the initiative move, and he still does. And so there was a moment where, of course, in accountability, in recognition of what the Lord was saying and doing, we surrendered to Jesus. We bowed to the Lord of glory. We placed our faith in him. We renounced the lordship of our own selves on our life and acknowledged the lordship of Jesus Christ in our lives. And that moment is called justification. We call it salvation, being born again. We, a lot of different ways to describe it. But we were so far away from him that the Bible says that we were actually dead. We were spiritually dead. And then the Bible doesn't compliment us any further. It says you are the enemies of God. Jesus used a phrase that, that indicates that before conversion, we are children of the devil. Aren't you glad you came this morning? Isn't this encouraging? But it's true. And yet, think about it. And the reason why I'm saying all this is, is those that were far away, all of us, were brought near. It's the passive voice. We were brought near by him. He did the bringing. We got the benefit. And he saved us and forgave us and cleansed us and justified us. And said, you're not my enemy anymore. You're my daughter. You're not my enemy anymore. You're, you're, you're my son. And as a matter of fact, as my son and my daughter, I'm going to let you in on my kingdom, not only when you get to heaven, but right now. I'm going to give you some gifts that you're going to use, and you're going to do something great, and it's all going to be for the glory of my son. I'm going to let you in on what I am doing. And so he gives us purpose. He pardons us. He gives us purpose. He gives us power. And, and then he sets us free in this world to do all that he's called us to do. He brings us near. We don't do it for him. We do it with him. And so we, we that were far off are brought near. He said, well, Jeff, yeah, we get that. I don't know that we do. Because if we really got it, it would, it would imbibe us with a humility 
to where we would never want to rise up against somebody else for whom the same is true. We wouldn't want to divide with somebody else that was brought near. We wouldn't want to oppose somebody else that has brought, uh, been brought near. We wouldn't want to keep away somebody else's. We'd want to come alongside of them and love them and partner with them and help them and do life with them. There'd be a braidedness together. We'd be woven with each other. And so the division in the church is not simply a practical thing. It's not simply a logistical thing. My friends, it's born of the reality that there is still within us the pulse in our heart that wants to be superior, That's right. that wants to view ourselves as distinctly different and <clears throat> better. That's it. That's so good. When Jesus said, yeah. I'm going to set the example for you because I am God, yeah. and yet I'm going to come to earth, and I'm going to take upon myself the form of a human, I'm going to be made in the likeness of man, I'm going to become a servant, and I'm going to serve all the way to the death of the cross. That's what I'm going to show you about what it means to be great in the kingdom. I'm going to lower myself so that others may be elevated. And yet we're, not, we're, we're struggling with that in the church, especially when it comes to these differences between us. And so he's done that for everybody, all, all that are saved. He's brought you near. You're so near he's in you and you're in him. It's just there's no separation. That's the way he likes it. And he wants us, John 17, he said, Father, the, the, the oneness that I have with you, I want them to have with each other. Did you know Jesus prayed that? So when we're pursuing oneness and we're pressing into oneness and we're casting off all the things that could divide us, we're actually answering Jesus' prayer in John 17. We're saying Jesus prayed something to the Father. I can either oppose that or I can facilitate that. And friends, I think we want to facilitate it. But the problem is, and there is some problems along the way, to facilitate the answer to John 17's prayer for our oneness with each other, guess what? You've got to die. You've got to die to yourself. You've got to die to your lesser glory. You've got to die to your lesser loyalties. You've got to die to all these little darts that seek to pin you with identification and lesser things. You have to renounce all of that. You have to say, I'm actually more Christian than I am white. I'm actually more Christian than I am male. I'm actually more Christian than I am, and you fill in the denomination there. I'm actually more Christian than I am Latino or black or Asian. I'm actually more Christian than I am Democrat or Republican or whatever you might be. I'm actually more Christian than I am. I've seen Christians fight over UGA versus tech. Literally fight. I'm thinking, y'all ain't saved. Come on. I thought it. I didn't say it, but I did think it. It's just silly. And it's time for it to end. And I can't end it for you and you can't end it for me. But I think the Father is saying to us, end it in your own heart. Crucify it. Put it to death. It may encourage you that crucifixion is a slow death. Crucifixion, you don't die as soon as you're crucified. You hang there a little while. The breath has to come out of you. You're there for a little bit. So you say, hey, Jeff, I'm struggling with this thing. That's okay. I'm asking you one thing. Have you pounded the nails in? Have you declared yourself dead to these lesser glories? Have you renounced yourself? Say, yeah, I've done that. Okay, you're dying. You're dying. That's good. That's a good thing. That's not a sadomasochistic thought. It's a, it's a New Testament gospel thought. You're dying. You're dying to lesser things. Why? Because as you decrease, he increases. And he lives in you. So what does Jesus accomplish for the church? We see what he does for every individual in bringing us near when we were far off. But look at these three things that he's done for the church in verses 14, 15, and 16. This is what he's done, okay? This is not what we're asking. This is what he's done. The demolition of barriers. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, Jew and Gentile. He's made us both one. And he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments ex as expressed in ordinances. Now, that's a little technical, and I'm not going to have time to go deep in it, but I do want you to know what Paul is writing there is that the, the, the core of the gospel, the sinless life of Jesus, the substitutionary sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross, the bodily resurrection of Jesus and his ascension back to the throne, those being the pillars of the gospel message, when he did that, the Bible says that in effect, when you come into that by faith, you are one. 
You're one with him, hallelujah. But you're actually one with every other Christian, no matter what they look like, no matter when they, when they lived. I mean, good night alive. I am, I am one with an Ethiopian Christian who lived in the third century across the sea. We're one, and he's in heaven, and I'm on earth. We're one. Why? Jesus did that. And that's just one out of billions of examples. We're one. What happened, Jeff? How did, they, how did Jew and Gentile and all others become one? Because Jesus broke down the wall between us. For the Jew and the Gentile, it was that wall of the law. Jesus came, and in one sense, because Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. So in fulfilling it, he abolished the condemnation of the Jewish law. He took that condemnation upon himself. Therefore, there is now, therefore, no condemnation to those of us that are in Christ Jesus. So in that sense, the penalty of the law has been abolished for all who are in Christ. And then he did abolish the ceremonial aspects of the law. It says here the, uh, the issues of the ordinances, the laws expressed in ordinances, their washings, their keeping of the calendar, all of the different sacrifices that had to be made. That's all been abolished because it's all been fulfilled. So there's nothing between us. It's very interesting. In the temple during Jesus's day, and even during Paul's day, there was literally on the outer court, the, the court of the Gentile, and these were actually uh, discovered. One is in Istanbul now, and the other is in a museum in Jerusalem. That literally there was in two places where it was inscribed to the Gentiles, don't enter into this part of the temple. If you do, you have nobody to blame for, uh, for your own death. And a lot of people think Paul is actually referring that, to that wall here that Jesus has torn down, that he's removed it. Friends, those were thick, impenetrable racial, cultural, and ideological walls. And the inspired Holy Writ says, Jesus has done away with it. How dare we start laying bricks in our generation to build new walls between us as Christians? What's the name of the church you're sitting in right now? That's becoming more and more prophetic. It's part of our mission. We're not only not going to build walls, we're coming after them. We're tearing them down. I'm not just talking about me and Dustin. It's not the dynamic duo, the bionic brothers. That's not what we're talking about. I'm talking about we as a body, we in this community. It's not just our church. We're partnering with other churches in this region, churches across denominational lines. You say, well, Jeff, I, you know, we, we don't want to be ecumenical. Well, my friends, listen, most people when they talk about separation are really preaching isolation. And there's just some things we might never agree on down here. And that's why I'm saying the tough work has to come. Do we sacrifice what we do know and can agree on on the altar of those things that we might, may never agree on, but they're peripheral issues? We've got to come to a place of maturity where we recognize that when God defines a person as my brother and sister, God expects me to learn how to love them and walk with them. Did, did any of y'all renounce your siblings when you were in your teens and you just couldn't quite get along? No, you didn't. Sometimes there were some war games going on in our homes, but we never renounced. We, we, why? We, we shared the same father. So as we continue to move forward into 2018, let me tell you what you can expect. You can expect ongoing intentional partnerships with other assemblies in our area. That's what we did Friday night where 16 different churches and over 1,000 people from multiple races come together to worship Jesus and declare that we'll no longer be a part of the problem. By the way, October 27th, next month, almost next month, in this building, we're having the second one race that was just solidified last week. We're going to have that. We're going to hold it right here. We don't want you to just attend. We want you to participate. We want you to get involved. We want you to serve. We want you to spread the word. Why? Because we want to be about the Father's business. And revival cannot come to this region if racism is still entrenched in this region. And you have to, put, listen, before Gideon went about and did the work of God, the first thing Gideon went out and did was pull down the altars that his father and grandfather set up. And if we expect to raise up a holy altar under Yahweh, the God we sang to this morning, mark it down. There's territory that he wants that is currently occupied by, by other altars that have been set up by our great-grandparents and have continued down through the history. Yeah, it's intense, right? You know why it's intense? It's not intense because of my personality. It's intense because there's warfare over this. 
Because we are literally sticking our foot into territory that Satan has claimed for himself in the southeastern United States for decades, centuries really, centuries. And the church is starting to give a prophetic roar saying, hey, what, what previous generations learned to live with, we hate it. We're not doing this anymore. Second thing, <laughs> if you're following, God help you. The assigning of a new identity. Why did Jesus tear down the wall? Here's the proactive part. So that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. Look at what Jesus did all this for. Why did he do it? Because there's only one church. There's only one body. It's it's just the heart of God. Is it practically awkward? Yeah, that's why there's so much instruction in the written epistles telling us how to do it, how to love each other, how to prefer each other, how to listen to each other, how to honor one another, how to humble ourselves. Stop, I mean, we, we, like, we can't do this. It's, it's too hard. What, where in the world does it say live out your faith robustly where it's easy? I mean, let's be reminded, friends, we're literally fighting Satan and his system. And of course it's going to be hard, but look at what the Lord said. The Lord said he has created in himself just one new person. No more Jew, no more Gentile, Christian. 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 It's a, it was a brand new thing that the book of Ephesians unfolds. I mean, he said back in verse 14, he himself is our peace. You know why we get along with people that are from different ethnicities, different walks of life? It's not a matter of just getting along with them. You know why we love them and we, we want to be braided in together with them? It's because we are braided in together with them. Because he's already done it. We're not, we're not moving and seconding and voting on it. He's already done it. We're saying we're going to participate in what you've already done. I think maybe the difficulty is, is I'm not sure there's been a generation of a church in America that's done this yet. So we're talking about pioneering work. I, listen, I'm all in. I'm not a crusader. But man, when I see something in Scripture and I find out that the Father's heart rhythm is beating to this, and it's all over the Bible, and there is a, a clear uproar in the land over this very issue, and we're, we're waiting on Washington, D.C. to fix this. Are we morons? They're not going to fix this. They can't. It's a heart issue. The king changes hearts, not the White House. And who is the representation of the king? It's the church. And so it's about time that we in the church started setting the fragrance of life unto life into the culture instead of bringing into the church the fragrance of death unto death from the culture. If you got to go, you got to go because I'm not quite done yet. I understand. I'm, I'm, nobody's shamed in this, but let me, let me get to the, towards the end. Verse 16 says that this is what he's accomplished for the church, the demolition of barriers, the assigning of a new identity, and the end of the war, or war, verse 16, so that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. I like that, man. That's my kind of talk. You know, I, I can be gentle. I have to work at it. I'm not made for sashaying through the fields. That's just not me. (laughs) Wasn't that pleasant? (laughs) Taylor said, nice visual. (laughs) Um, That's just not me. And so when I read something like killing the hostility, I'm like, that's in my Bible. I get to say it. Here we go. (laughs) Killing the hostility. Think about that. We have to make war against the war. That's warfare. We don't get to decide whether or not there's going to be a war over this issue. There already has been. And generations of African Americans on this continent for 400 years have been casualties of the war that was started by men who were themselves inwardly enslaved when they brought the first slaves from Africa over here. 400 years. White people may not like this. You, you, can, you can just take it for what it's worth. It's historical truth. We cannot reframe it. We're not going to adjust it. It's reality. Origin affects outcome. If we don't go back and acknowledge the origin, we have no right to expect a healthy outcome. 
And so when we look at the origin of the sin problem, war was declared. And for 400 years, a segment of our society has been oppressed. And I know the popular thing to say, well, in 1865, the Emancipation Proclamation, my friends, it took another 100 years before they could go into the same restaurants as white people. You got people like Rosa Parks who wouldn't give up her seat to a, a white man. It's 100 years after slavery was abolished. And then we say, well, we've had an African-American president, so everything's level now. The reason why, and listen, I'm, I'm being very serious. The reason why white people think that is because they never talk to black people. We talk to ourselves. And we encourage one another to maintain, though it may not be overt racism, it's a prejudicial presumption. And that has to come down. And it doesn't come down, it doesn't, doesn't come down through a sermon. It doesn't even come down completely through a big gathering of a thousand people from multiple races. But those are all catalysts. And let me tell you where it comes down. Where individual Christians start loving other individual Christians to acknowledge historic wrongs, to listen to how that has made a certain segment of the church, the, the, the African Americans in the church feel. And for white people to stop being afraid, well, if we acknowledge it, are they going to take our stuff through reparations? Not only people are laughing at that are our black brothers and sisters here because they're like, you're saying it, man. We know y'all think that way. I know this makes some of us uncomfortable, but if we don't get past the awkwardness of it, nothing's ever going to get healed. And the fact of the matter is, is listen, if we are one in Jesus, we will have conversations. This is kind of one way, but we will have conversations like this and even more difficult ones. The question is, is are we sick enough of it as the church to address it straight up, instead of letting a corrupt cultural system define to us what we need to do. And what the culture is saying is saying to blacks, be furious, be angry, you'll never be heard, fight, do whatever it takes, wage war. And it's saying to the whites, hold your breath a little longer, maybe it'll go away. And it's not going away. So here's the voice of the church, the most authoritative voice in the land when the church speaks. And we say, Jesus has killed the hostility in the church. It has to begin here. It has to. If he's killed the hostility, then we don't have to operate in it. But that's not the same thing as saying, well, we'll just pretend it never happened. It just means reconciliation is a process. Forgiveness is instantaneous. Reconciliation is a process. So let me just finish it up because I can tell the fire hydrants drowning some of y'all. Let me, let me just give you these last couple of things. Matter of fact, worship team, if you could come forward, that'll, that'll help me finish. Brothers and sisters, that's what we are. There needs to be a commitment to clarity. Let me clarify what we share. I've, I've spent probably the majority of this talking about our differences and our need to be reconciled in the midst of those differences. But I do want to end with what we have in common. First of all, uh, the Lord says the same things to us, verse 17. He came and preached peace to you, Gentiles, who were far off, and peace to those who were near. Those are the Jews. And those two historically hostile groups in the first century, he said the same thing to them. Shalom. Shalom. Irene, which is another word for peace in the New Testament which means shalom is peace and well-being and wholeness between you and God, and it has, it has applications in other areas, but that's ultimately what that means. It's the, the wholeness that comes from the Lord. And irene is another Greek word. We get the word, the name Irene from it, and it's a different kind of peace. It's a horizontal peace. It's me having peace with you and you having peace with me. And the Lord came, and, and he just declared that. He's the prince of peace. We were told that at his birth. And he's going to come, and he is going to establish peace on the earth. That's actually still in our Bibles. And all I'm saying, it's not all I'm saying, but I, I guess summarizing what I'm saying is, I want to cooperate with his heart on that. There's just something in me as a believer that I don't want to have, uh, I, I, this is going to sound so irreverent, I don't want him to have to do it all. I want to I cooperate now 
so that when he comes, we've already yielded ourselves to the establishment of his peace. I don't want him to come and find me fighting with Jock, who's African-American. I don't want him, Jesus, to come back and have me and Tony, who's Puerto Rican, uh, not seeing eye to eye because our, our native tongue isn't the same. I don't want any of that junk in me. And so, friends, all I'm saying is this. He's going to do it. Hallelujah. But he's saying right now to the church, I want you to join with me before I return. I want you to engage my Father's heart and will now. So that means we're going to have to start saying the right things. And we're going to have to stop communicating the wrong things. I know this sounds like a legalist. So be it. I've worn that moniker before. You need to be really careful about what you espout or espouse on social media. It says something about your character. It'd just be better to not say anything than to keep throwing fuel on a fire the devil started. I'll give you this last happy note because as hard as I'm trying to end happy, I don't want to ruin your lunch or anything, but yeah, thank you. Thank you, Glenn. Glenn. <laughs> Middle C or whatever that is. Okay, verse 18. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to done. Lord, where do I finish? Yeah, right here, verse 18. For through him, yeah, this is good. For through him, we all have access in one spirit to the Father. We all do. We all do. We all have access. One spirit, the Holy Spirit. Not the Baptist spirit, not the Presbyterian spirit, not the Methodist spirit, not the African spirit, not the European spirit, not the Chinese spirit, not the traditional conservative Bible Belt spirit and the wild West Coast radicalized charismatic spirit. He who lives in me lives in you, child of God. And through him, we come to not just God, but Father. Father. My everlasting, holy Abba is yours. And I don't know about you. I want to honor him. And I don't think I can honor him unless and until I'm fully committing, committed to honoring all of his other children. So we've got some work to do.